Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, I'm glad you're here tonight. I'm glad I'm here tonight, and I do plan to stay this Wednesday. So I don't have any plans to I don't have any plans to run out on you here in a few minutes unless something changes. So uh, thanks for uh, putting up with that last week. Everything turned out good. My wife's doing fine. Uh, and a couple issues we're following up on, but everything's fine. So thank you for your prayers. Uh, I will tell you that I sent an email out. Uh, I came the next day and recorded the session in here all by myself. And no, it's not the same. It was close. <laughs> to, to, is to talk to a room that's empty, it's kind of hard. But I sent that out. And if you haven't seen that, um, last week's session is on YouTube. It's on the website. So it's all out there. So we're going to... We're going to stay up, and uh, I had just finished telling you I was having a hard time getting all these crammed inside 13 weeks, and then I skip a week. So that's why I crammed it back in there, and let's keep going. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this, um, this book called the Bible, uh, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Its words will we hide in our hearts that we might not sin against you, that we might know you, the one true God and Jesus whom you sent to this earth. So open our minds to understand the scriptures tonight as we continue this journey through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The story, chapter 10, standing tall, falling hard. Several of us have been in those scenes too. In the 1800s, Charles Caleb Colton coined the phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Of course, he was simply observing what he had what had been part of human nature for all of history. Here it is. People tend to do what the people around them are doing. It's just the way it works. For better, for worse, we're affected by the culture that surrounds us. Thus, we have a great contrast in this session tonight um, between the last judge of Israel. And when I say judge, everybody starts thinking of a black-robed guy in a courtroom. Israel's judges were not that, they were judges, they could rule, but they were more like governors than there were judges. So, uh, so when Israel's last judge is Samuel, and the contrast is Samuel, the last judge or governor kind of a role, turned to a king. The first king is Saul. That's where the contrast lies tonight. Samuel and his life are very much in the likeness of God's character and in perfect harmony with the upper story plan of God. Very different than the world. Uh, Samuel, the last judge of Israel, the last ruler of Israel, uh, was a godly man. Uh, the heart of Israel and their call for an earthly king, Saul, was so they would imitate the world's ways and thus depart from God's plan. And God's plan was what? He would be the king. So it's really not complicated. God says, I'll give you governors and rulers, but I'll be your king. Well, they weren't satisfied with that because the kingdoms around them, the people around them, they had a king and they wanted what they had. So let's start with Samuel, the last judge of Israel. 1 Samuel 1-2, he, and he's referring to Elkanah, had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Israel operated under the be fruitful and multiply law of God. And, and what that meant was um, it was their purpose in life to have children. It was their calling. And it was a heavy burden if you couldn't have children. And it would be even more of a heavy burden if you had a competing wife who was able to have children and you couldn't. And that's the scene in Samuel's, uh, in Hannah's life. Uh, go to verse 6. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, her is Hannah, and Hannah will be the mother of this child who will be named Samuel. Uh, go to verse, um, so how's she going to deal with being taunted? She can't have children, and, and in the Jewish world, that would be a shame. Um, it would be terrible. And now she's taunted by the other wife who can have children. 
So is she going to spend the rest of her life um, in a terrible way, or will she cry out to God? Here we go, verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, and Shiloh's important uh, because they hadn't gone to— the, Shiloh's kind of the, the, um, the capital at this time. They haven't gone to Jerusalem. None of that Jerusalem stuff has happened. This is way before David. So um, they're in Shiloh, and Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Now, the Lord's temple is in Shiloh at this stage, okay? Not Jerusalem. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. What's she in bitterness of soul about? She, she wants a child. That's it. She wants a child. And, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. She's specific. She's not just saying, I want a boy or a girl. I, I want a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. Now, she says, if you'll give him to me, I'll give him to you. You give him to me and I'll give him to you. The Lord heard her prayer, and the Lord gave her a son, supernaturally. And Hannah gives her child to the Lord. The Bible, as we track the story, the Bible says each year, each year she would take him a robe, and as she promised, um, she gives this son to the ministry as a child. She didn't give him to the ministry as a 20-year-old man, she gives him to the ministry of the priesthood as a baby. Once he's weaned, she gives him to the Lord, takes him to Eli, the priest, and says, here, he's yours. Raise him in the priesthood. Um, by the way, how did God reward her faith and devotion? I love this part. Boy, we can learn a whole lot, but he, God gave her three sons and two daughters. So, he, he, he took her offering and multiplied it and gave her back more than she ever gave him. Samuel, then um, he has his first test. His first test. God's message is going to come to him, and it's not a popular message. A lot of preachers could learn a lot from this today. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Eli's the priest in charge at that, over all of Israel at that time. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. That ought to tell you a whole lot about the state of the condition. The Lord's word was rare. People weren't having very many visions. Not many encounters with God. That's what that's saying. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to Samuel. The Lord came and stood there calling as as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. Now, now stop for a moment. All right, you're a, you're a young man at this stage, and you have never actually had a real encounter with God before this. And you have your first encounter, and he says, what? I'm going to tell you that something that's going to make the ears of everybody alive tingle. He's not starting with something small. This is big. What is it? At that time, I, I will carry out against Eli, your, your boss. There's a time coming. I'm going to carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from the beginning to the end. For I, God, told him, Eli, the priest, I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he, the priest, refused to restrain his sons. Anybody listening, parents? 
God is going to bring judgment upon Eli and Eli's family because his boys were rotten and the father would not restrain his sons. And terrible things are going to happen. It's going to make the ears of people tingle. 14. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifices and offering. Now who's getting this news? Young Samuel is getting this revelation of God's plan. Samuel. Samuel lay down until morning, then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Now, don't you think, would you be afraid? Would you like to tell your boss such news? See, yeah, if I didn't like him, I'd enjoy it. Now, who wants to tell their boss this? The priest. Who wants to tell him this? Will Samuel actually tell Eli, and, will, and how will Eli respond? Verse 16, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli is not stupid. What did God say to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So did God in the upper story do what he said he was going to do to Eli and his family? What you have here is God um, bringing Samuel to a place of prominence by speaking to him. A person who God begins to speak to will find a place of prominence just by virtue of the fact that God is now speaking to the people through Samuel. And um, is it going to happen? Is, is God going to follow up and do something to Eli and to Eli's sons? So let's jump ahead. The ark of God was, there's a battle, and the ark of God was lost along with 30,000 foot soldiers, including Hophni and Phinehas. Those are the two sons of Eli who are rotten. They're, they're killed in this battle, and the Philistines come and take the Ark of the Covenant, and the, the bad news is going to come to Eli. Now, everybody pause for a moment. This happens to me all the time. Well, right now, you don't get it, but this happens to me all the time. Um, that is in Sunday's sermon. But what I just told you, in detail, we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, three-part series. That sentence, which I wrote some time ago, is, is going to come collide with Sunday's message. And when I say that happens to me all the time, every time it happens to me, it's confirmation to me that God is directing us from multiple positions to single events, to reveal a single, a single truth that He wants to impress. And, and, and the Ark of the Covenant, come you'll figure out how all this ties together. So, so Samuel's been told something's going to happen. It's going to make your ears tingle. I'm going to bring judgment against Eli and his family. They have this battle. The Philistines kill, what, uh, 30,000 Israelites get killed in the battle. They take the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines walk off with it. And, and Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, are, are killed. It's happening. What God told Samuel, it's happening. Go to verse 17. The man who brought the news about the battle replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, has been captured by the Philistines. When he mentioned the Ark of God, when the messenger comes to Eli, and mentions the ark of God has been captured. Eli fell backwards off of his chair by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. 
for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years, and his days were up. What do you think happens then? The priesthood is transferred from Eli, Hophni, Phinehas. They're gone. Samuel. God has, has changed administrations. It's changed. Now, I want you to contrast Samuel. He's the last judge of Israel, last ruler of Israel before they had kings, to the story of King Saul. Well, this session is trying to show that leadership is based upon character, okay? 1 Samuel 8 verse 4, so the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Now, by this time, Samuel's been ruling over Israel a long time. And they said to Samuel, Samuel, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. That's another way of saying it made Samuel mad. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their leader. This is a this is a difficult time in the history of Israel. This is what some people call the junior high phase of Israel. We want to be like everyone else. That's junior high, right? I just want to do what they're doing. Does it work? I don't know. I just want to do it because they're doing it. Do you really think your way will be better than God's way? I said it earlier. I need to say it again. God's administrative design, desire for Israel was they would have one king, and he would be it. God would be the king. He would rule through the judges and the priesthood. The judges and the priesthood. He would, he would speak to them and rule through them, but he'd be the king, the ultimate source of authority, right? That was his plan. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Be careful what you ask for. The Lord might just give it to you, and in this case, he's going to. Their minds are made up. We want an earthly king, so God gives them a king and fills that king. Listen, I find this to be merciful. He gives them a king, which he doesn't want to do, and he gives the king his spirit so that King Saul, the first king, might find success because God supernaturally puts his spirit upon King Saul. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Now, this is how the 42-year reign of King Saul ends. I'm fast forward. I'm going through Samuel, now I'm going through Saul. So here we go. 1 Samuel 13, 13. You acted foolishly. Samuel, who is still on the scene, says to King Saul, Samuel has, has yielded authority to King Saul, but Samuel's still Samuel. Samuel, he's still a man of God. You have acted foolishly, Samuel said to Saul. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, the holy man speaks to now the unholy man. If you had followed God, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Wow. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, now stop for a moment. Samuel watched that happen to Eli. And now Samuel's watching that happen to King Saul. He puts you in authority, you fail, he takes you out. He puts you in authority, you fail, he takes you out. Samuel's watched it happen twice. So how does that apply to us? Listen, the word church in the New Testament is ecclesia. That's what the word means. 
which means the called out. Let me give you a contrast. The purpose of this chapter is this. We are the called out ones, not the go along with ones. We're different. We're called out. We have never been called by God to go along with the world. We've been called out of the world to be different than the world. Israel wanted to be like the rest of the people. But he called them out to be different. Church, we are called out to be different than the world. Quit desiring what the world desires. We're separate. We're the called out ones. Think about it. The Bible says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might be able to test and approve God's good and perfect and pleasing will. Romans chapter 12. Okay, here comes the next chapter, chapter 11. From shepherd to king. You all know the story. Let's go. Sometime you just have to move on. You need to stop grieving. You need to stop mourning and wondering how things might have been and accept that the upper story plan will always be accomplished. Samuel in this story is mourning and God is grieving. Did you know that God grieves? Samuel is mourning because you think he enjoyed watching Eli come down? No. You think he enjoyed watching King Saul self-destruct? No. No. So he's mourning for King Saul. God is grieving for King Saul and, and uh, how things have worked out. But nothing is going to stop the upper story plan of God. It's time to move on. Let's pick up the story in, uh, uh, from chapter 10, and we're going to chapter 11, the shepherd and the king. 1 Samuel 15, 32. Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. So here's the scene. Samuel is there. Saul is still king. There's been a battle. Saul has not been obedient to God in the battle with King Agag and the Amalekites. Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Israel had captured him. Agag came to him, Samuel, confidently thinking, surely the bitterness of death has passed. What do you think that means? King Agag thinks, I've survived. They're not going to kill me. They've killed everybody else, but the king's still alive. Agag, he's a bad guy. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother's will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Who should have done that? Saul. Who did it? Samuel. When God's person doesn't do it, he'll send somebody else to do it. Then Samuel left for Ramah. But Saul, he's king went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long, Samuel, will you mourn for Saul? I tell you, Samuel gets no pleasure in his king performing this way. How long are you going to mourn for him? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, Samuel, get over it. It's time to move on. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear it about it and kill me. That tells you who was in power. He was afraid. Samuel was afraid of King Saul. Saul is still the king, and what will happen when he hears that Samuel's gone to Bethlehem to anoint his replacement? It's going to get ugly. There is a verse that I want to consider about Samuel before we turn our attention to David. I've always found this verse, why are the elders of Bethlehem trembling with fear when Samuel walks into town? Here it is. Here's the verse. I want you to think about it. So, that the people in Bethlehem don't know why he's coming. 
I mean, Samuel knows why he's coming. He's going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the king. But they don't know. They don't know. Samuel, um, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Now, understand, Samuel, I'm, I'm, I wonder if the word had gone out that he just executed King Agag of the Ammonites. He's, he's, he took sword and executed the king of a foreign power. And now he shows up in your town. Do you come in peace? Why are they terrified of this guy? I mean, there'd be a lot of supposition. Um, he's a holy man. And everybody knows he's a holy man. And here's what I wrote. Samuel's not a people pleaser. He's not a politician. And that's what earthly kings do. But he was a man of God. Thus the fear, thus the respect, and thus the reverence that the people had for Samuel's presence. Why? Because they knew that when they encountered Samuel, they had encountered God. Because Samuel was God's servant, his messenger. And they're afraid of that. Samuel is still a man. And as a man, he couldn't help but look at the outside appearance of Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. So what's his job? God's told Samuel, go to Jesse in Bethlehem. He's got sons. I'm going to show you who the next king will be to replace Saul. If you're Samuel, and he's just a man, if you're Samuel, and if you're Jewish, who's it going to be? The oldest son, right? That's how God did things. That's how the order was. It'd be the oldest son, not in this case. When they arrived, verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, see, Eliab's the oldest son of Jesse. Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. Samuel thinks this is him. This would be a, a, a very fast process. He's the right one. We'll, we'll anoint him and have supper. You know, let's move on. Surely it's Eliab. He's the one that stands before the Lord. But, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. Do not consider his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man, is that true? Man looks at the outward appearance. You better believe it. How many people have you and I misjudged in our lifetime? We look at that person and immediately form in our mind, yeah, he's a winner, he's a loser. No. You, can, you cannot tell that on the outside. There's so much to be learned about God inside that one verse. He's looking for character. He's looking for integrity. By the way, King Saul, was he a short guy? Did y'all know the scripture? He was a handsome, masculine, big guy. He's everybody's picture of a king. And he's a loser. Right? He's looking for character and integrity. He's looking for one who will reveal his glory and nature to the watching world. That has more to do with the inside of a man or a woman than the outside. Seven of Jesse's sons passed by Samuel, and God says no to all seven. Even Jesse, the father, couldn't imagine the runt of the litter being the choice. You know why I say that? Because he's not even in the house. He's not even in the house. He's out in the sheep pen or wherever. Verse 11. So he, Samuel, asked Jesse, are these all your sons you have? Because at that point, Samuel's thinking he's got the wrong house. He's thinking, are these all the sons you've got? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will, not, uh, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise, anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. This is important. 
He anointed David in the presence of his brothers. Those boys are watching this happen, his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, church-age people don't really understand the significance of that verse. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't come in and dwell in people like it does in the New Testament. In that day, the Spirit would come upon somebody, and maybe later the Spirit would depart, and then something special would happen, the Spirit would come upon them. So in this, in this case, when the anointing took place, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit comes upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Now Saul had the Spirit and it's gone. And an evil spirit from the Lord came. So God, from the Lord, did y'all see that? From the Lord. An evil spirit from the Lord took the place of the Holy Spirit of the Lord in Saul's life. At the same time, the Holy Spirit has come upon David. God chose David, not Samuel. Samuel was just a tool in God's hands. David's fathers, father and brothers all knew and witnessed the anointing and the calling of God. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon David. It departs from Saul. And remember, Saul is still king. Listen carefully. Saul will be king for the next 14 years. Anybody listen? Do you think that there's something wrong with Samuel's timing? For the next 14 years, Saul is king. Why is David anointed, and why has the Spirit of the Lord came upon this young shepherd boy? David has received the anointing, but the inauguration will not occur for 14 years. And how will David's brothers respond to the runt getting the anointing? How? When David comes to deliver food, all of you probably know the story. It's the story of David and Goliath. When, the, when David comes to the scene, he's not even in the army in that story. When David comes to deliver food and check on his brothers in the time of Goliath, how will the oldest boy, Eliab, remember him? The one that Samuel thought, surely he's the Lord's anointed. How will Eliab respond to his little runt brother, Tell me this doesn't sound like the normal families that we live in today. Go to verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and at, at David and asked, Why have you come down here? He's at the battleground. And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? Now, how do you think that that was said? Huh? You think that was, we're so glad to see you, David. We've missed you, David. Do you think that's it? No, they don't like him. Why don't they like him? Be because they anointed you and should have been me. With whom have you left those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Little did Eliab know. You came down just to watch the battle. Now, what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? That's, that sounds like something that happened in my family when I was a kid. If you go forward just a little bit in the story, David kills Goliath through the power of the Holy Spirit that is upon him. David's victory over Goliath has plunged him into the spotlight of all of Israel. And now King Saul feels threatened. He feels threatened. Let me read it to you. First Samuel 18, 6. This is after David kills Goliath. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and, and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, oh my, is this going to make Saul mad? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Ooh. Ooh, that hurt. Saul was very angry, and the refrain, the song, galled him. They have credited David with 
tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? I told you, it's 14 years between David's calling and when he takes the throne. So who do you think Saul planned to succeed him on the throne of Israel? This is why it's so important that you get the story in the sequence. He had a son. Saul's got a son. And his son's name's Jonathan. And Saul's plan is what? Saul's plan, he's going he's to step down at some point and his son Jonathan is going to take the kingdom, right? Jonathan, however, understood that David was indeed the anointed of God. And why would God allow Saul to chase and torment David for 14 years? These are thinking questions. I want you to think about, why would God allow Saul to chase and torment David for 14 years? Because after they started singing this song, David's a hunted man. And why would God allow Joseph, we talked about him in an earlier session, to be a slave and in prison for 13 years in Egypt? Why is God letting these people that he picks, handpicks, why is he letting them suffer? God is holy and righteous, and he wants his followers and his appointed leaders to reveal his holiness and righteousness to a watching world. God is going to use these 14 years of David being tormented by King Saul. He's going to use these 14 years to shape the character and integrity of David as the king that would reveal the Messiah to the watching world. Now, if you go in the story, there's something amazing that happens. David finds himself in a cave in a place where King Saul doesn't know he's there. And David has his chance. He has been running from this king for all these years. And now he finds himself with Saul, close to Saul, without a security detail around the king. Oh, this is your chance. And he doesn't take it. He doesn't take it. What's he do instead? He takes off, he takes his sword and cuts the corner of Saul's robe, cuts the edge of it off. But Saul doesn't know that David has been there and that he cut the hem of his uh, robe off. Go to verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience stricken. I am moved by that sentence. Why are you conscious stricken? Because you, David is in regret because he even touched Saul's robe. Why? Saul to David is the Lord's anointed. And he's the Lord's anointed until he anoints somebody else. You would say, well, David's been anointed. He's not been inaugurated. Not yet. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of, of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, David says to his men, and by the way, his men said, kill him. Right? He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. You see, listen, you might read this and say, I don't get it. David respected God's timing. Church, we could learn a lot by respecting God's timing. It's not your timing. It's his timing. David could use his own initiative and just take over. Just become the king by killing the old one. He wouldn't do it. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his, own, went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He's doing this to a guy who's been trying to kill him for years. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you, Saul, into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, 
Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. Oh, there's how you go to bed at night with peace in your heart. May the Lord decide which one of us is right. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. What's the scripture? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance. Let him do it. David understood the scripture. David is revealing the character of God to all there that day. He's revealing the character of God. And how would Saul respond to this righteous man who has just cut the edge of his robe off but spared his life? Verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And Saul wept. Wow, this hard-hearted king, he cried. Think about it. He wept aloud, you are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. King Saul and his son Jonathan, let's fast forward in the story. King Saul, his son Jonathan, and two brothers will eventually die in a battle with the Philistines all in a single day, in one day. Now, here's the parallel. Eli and his sons died in a battle with the Philistines all in one day. God brought both of these leaders to the grave with their families in a single day. Took them down. David becomes king of Israel. And he does something that will affect the world for generations to come. It affects every one of us in this room when he becomes king. Here we go. 2 Samuel 5 verse 1. All the tribes of Israel. Now Saul's dead, okay? All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on the military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact. Uh, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Now remember, he ran from Saul for 14. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, here it comes, here it comes. He reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. Now understand something. Let me give you some history. At this point in Israel's history, Saul, Samuel, Saul, David, Jerusalem's not Israel. The Jebusites reign over Jerusalem. In fact, they were powerful people. It was a fortified city and nobody could break down and get in. Listen careful. That's about to change. It'll change when a man, when a shepherd comes. When a shepherd, Jesus is our good shepherd, right? When a shepherd king comes, Jerusalem will become his. Listen. The king, David, and his men march to Jerusalem. Where's the capital when this happens? Hebron. Something's going to happen. They marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. <laughs> Even the blind and the lame could ward you off. That's a bad idea. David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. Why do I make that a big deal? Because David brings the ark into Jerusalem. And God tells him that his son Solomon will build a permanent temple there. 
And then God reveals the real upper story plan to David. A Messiah. Here he comes. If you didn't know it, if you couldn't put the pieces together, you wouldn't get it. Verse 16. Your house, God to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What's he doing? What's the upper story? Why does why he got to have Jerusalem? Do you understand what's in Jerusalem that the Jebusites have? The, the Orthodox Jewish people, you won't find it in the Bible, I'm always careful to say that the Orthodox Jew, Jews believe that, that there's a stone. It's called the foundation stone. And on the foundation stone, God um, created Adam, breathed into Adam the breath of life, the foundation stone. And from that point, he then placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. I'm talking about Orthodox Judaism. I'm not going to dispute them. They believe that on the stone, God formed Adam. And then you can say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Garden of Eden, there were rivers. There's no rivers in Jerusalem. And he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. So you think, okay, what's the big deal? Go on into Abraham. In the time of Abraham, God said to Abraham, take Isaac to Moriah. Take him to Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. It is at Moriah that the name Yahweh Yira is revealed. Yahweh Yira is the Lord God. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Where's Mount Moriah? Fast forward. In the time of King David, he goes to buy a threshing floor. And he, he thrives, buys a threshing floor um, from one of the Jebusites that had previously owned it. And the threshing floor happens to be Mount Moriah. The and Mount Moriah happens to be the foundation stone. And you still think, well, I still don't get what's the significance of this place that's now in Jerusalem. Adam's been formed. Uh, Abraham has sacrificed Isaac. Now King David buys it, makes an offering, and death stops among Israel. It's the place where he built the temple. It's the place behind the veil. The foundation stone is the rock behind the veil on the temple mount on Mount Moriah of the most holy place. It's the throne of God. You'll never get it until you get that sentence. The throne of God. Let me read it. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, David died and Solomon died and all those kings died and then King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, died. So what's he doing? There will be a king in Jerusalem. If you've been coming to church here very long, you already know who he is. <laughs> Chapter 12. I keep going on that. I'll never finish. So I'll stop. The trials of a king. Have you ever played dominoes? Dominoes have a way of showing us that one event... One fall can have a great influence on something very close and something at a great distance. By the way, the world record for dominoes is 4,234,037. And no, I would not want to be a part of those people to set those up. In chapter 12 of the story, we see one event. Oh, man, this is so important. One event, one bad decision put in motion a series of events that would change a family and reveal the justice and mercy of God. Three things become evident as we read the lower story events of chapter 12. Number one, we all have sin nature that compels us to do the wrong thing. Number two, our sin and rebellion will affect the lives of others. Are you ready? And God himself. Do you know your sin affects God? So when people look at me, man, don't ever try it with me. It won't work. Somebody says, it's my body. It's my life. I'll do what I want to. As if sin only affects me. Oh, are you deceived. Sin affects your house, your family, your descendants. It affects God. Sin does, you don't belong to yourself. You don't, you didn't come from you. Ver, uh, number three, there are consequences for our choices. Even if you find forgiveness, there's consequences. Uh, 
This chapter begins with what? David, all is well. David and the nation of Israel, they're on top of the world. Everything is wonderful. Verse 15, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. The Spirit of God is upon him. The nation is united. All the tribes are united. Peace, power, it's wonderful. Then one day something happened. I want you to think about it. David flips over the first domino. A series of events will come because of one day's choice. Verse, verse 1. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. At that point, the domino was still standing. Run. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife? Run. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Think about the three items listed above. That one, two, and three. As we pause in this scene of David's lower story life. What will David do when he hears those words? I am pregnant. What's he going to do? He's a man of character, right? What's he going to do? Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how was the war going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house. Anybody figured it out yet? Why does, he want Joab, uh, why does he want Uriah to go down to his house? They didn't have a whole lot of DNA testing back there and ultrasound equipment to know when the date of conception was, right? Go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and the gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace. A man of character with all of his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Do you think David's really interested about his relationship between him and his wife? He's trying to cover this thing up. David's stress level is rising. Because his plan to deceive Uriah has failed. Failed because of Uriah's integrity. Then David, the things that David should have had in full measure, Uriah has in full measure. Integrity. Verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife as surely as you live? I will not do such a thing. What a man of integrity. He's the guy you want next to you in the army. David even tries to get him drunk. Surely that'll work, but it didn't. Character won out, even over alcohol. Can I insert something there? Most of the time when alcohol is involved, character does not win out. Most of the time in alcohol, the first domino goes over. Because that's when people will do things drunk that they would never, ever, ever, ever do sober. David at this time could have stopped. You understand something? At this point, he could have stopped and confessed and accepted the consequences, but he didn't. And more dominoes are about to fall. Murder. It's the only way to stop it now. Or is that the ultimate deception of David? What? That he can stop it. That he can hide it. That nobody will know. 
see, there's the ultimate deception, is the idea that nobody knows. He knows. He knows. Uriah dies. You read the story, Uriah dies. David sends him into battle on purpose. Uriah dies. Bathsheba mourns. And then she marries the king. Who will know? God knows. And he sends Nathan, a holy man, a prophet. He sends Nathan to reveal the truth about the deeds of darkness. Light always does that. And Nathan tells David the story about a rich man who takes a family pet ewe lamb from a poor man. And David becomes furious, understanding that it's just wrong. Now understand the story. Nathan comes with this very clever idea that he's going to show the unrighteousness of the king by telling the king an unrighteous story. And he tells about a poor guy who has this pet lamb and some powerful guy comes and takes that guy's pet lamb and eats it, uses it for a meal. It infuriates David. Listen to David's response to Nathan's hypothetical story. Verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man deserves to die. He has no idea at this time that Nathan's story is about him. As surely as the Lord lives, the man deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, I got cold chills. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. What do you think is on David's face right now? David's face right now. I, I see he is, all the blood has gone out of his face. And his knees are shaking. Because now a holy man stands in front of him. A man speaking for God. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house to you. And I gave your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel. And I gave you Judah. And if all this had not had been too little, I would have given you even more, David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite. God knows. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David's own judgment, own words of judgment to Nathan's story were, were what? David's own words of judgment. What? He should pay back four times what he did. The guy who took the ewe lamb for himself, he should Surely he should die, and he should pay four times as much as he took. God takes that judgment and places it upon David. It's almost like David denounced his own verdict. God's, God is righteous. God is just. And David's own words were righteous and just. He just didn't know he was talking about himself. Verse 10, now, here comes the judgment. Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, David, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Did you notice? Out of your house, it'll come from your children. I will bring calamity upon you before your very eyes. I will take your wives. David took Uriah's wife, right? Before your eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, if you know the story... That would happen later when David's son Absalom would actually sleep with David's wives on the rooftop in full view of everyone. Will this be David's undoing? Will he end up like Saul? 
Will he end up like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas? Will this be his undoing? No. There is one remarkable difference. It's called repentance. What a wonderful, powerful word. Psalms 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David wrote this psalm after he received his judgment of God, right? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, who's David's sin affecting? Uriah, Bathsheba, his children? Yes, yes, yes. God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's talking to God so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Do you see it? He's crying out to God for forgiveness. He's confessing his sin. He's repenting his sin. He's the difference between Saul and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. He's the difference. What's the difference? He's broken before God. He's broken. He acknowledges, I've blown it all. I've flipped the dominoes over. Create in me a pure heart. What a wonderful prayer every day. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. You see what he's doing? I'm going to repent. You're going to restore me and I'm going to be your best messenger. I'm going to tell everybody about your mercy and your wonderful truth. I'm going to tell everybody. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it to you. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. Do you see what he's doing? I could go out here and kill a cow and put it on the altar, but that's not what you want right now. I could bring you a thousand offerings and put them in the temple, but that's not what you want right now. What do you want? The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's what he wants. You think he's changed? No, that's what he wants right now. David's repentance was real. And let's be clear, it saved his life. God forgave him. There can be forgiveness but sometimes the consequences of our sin choices will remain. On the seventh day, the child of David and Bathsheba dies. David's daughter, Tamar, is raped by Amnon. Absalom lies with David's concubines in broad daylight in fulfillment of God's punishment. Absalom tries to take the kingdom from his father, David, and is killed by David's soldiers. David brought calamity to his family. Were there consequences from that sexual encounter with Bathsheba? Yes, consequences. Was there forgiveness and restoration before God? Yes. David had many wives, but guess who God chose to be in the genealogy of Christ? This one forever blows my mind. Absolutely, I will never, this blows my ever-loving mind. David had a bunch of wives. He could have taken any of those wives' son to be the next king 
and succeed him in the genealogy of the Messiah. You know who he chose? God chose? Bathsheba. Wow. Does God forgive? Yes. Verse 24, then David confront, uh, comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Wow. Solomon was chosen by God to build the temple of God, and guess where? On Mount Moriah, the temple mount. The upper story is revealed. First Chronicles 22. But you, David, will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all of his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. The son of an adulterous relationship became the king. David not only received forgiveness from God, but his relationship with God was restored. David loved God with all of his heart. His passion in life was to bring glory to God. David assembled the materials and the wealth that would be required to build the Jerusalem temple. Listen to what he said when all the offerings were coming in. 1 Chronicles 29.10 David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Wow. What a contrast between King David and King Saul. Both fail. Listen, are you listening? Both of them fail. But one would rationalize his sin while the other would confess and repent, seeking to restore the broken relationship that would become the absolute treasure of his life. So let's close with the last verse of David's famous psalm. David says, Surely goodness and mercy, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a good psalm. That applies only if he is your shepherd. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the mercy that you have given that demonstrated in David and Bathsheba. That if you confess, if we would confess our sin, a broken and contrite heart is what you want from us. If we confess our sin, repent of that sin, you restore and you set up all the dominoes. There's consequences, Lord, but our, our life is restored with you. Our relationship is restored with you. And we realize, Lord, that all of this points to the Messiah that was coming from David's family. And for that Messiah Jesus, we give you thanks and amen. Thank you all.